So if um, you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 25. Sometimes uh, I wonder, you know, why God does this, the things that he does because, you know, his ways are not my ways. And, and I just trust in him knowing that those unseen purposes that are happening are, are, are God's purposes. They're going to come into effect. And, and, you know, I wonder even like when I think of John Bunyan, who was a great preacher and he was in prison for those 12 years and you know, why would, why would he be put in prison like that for that time? But I also think about how Pilgrim's Progress, one of the you know, great pieces of Christian literature, was written during that time. And, and I also think about the Apostle Paul. I mean, here he's, he's been in prison for two years, and he says, I've done nothing wrong. And, and even um, when uh, you read uh, chapter 25, I mean... Uh, Festus and also Felix both, the Roman governors. I mean, they're trying to figure out, like, what did he do, you know? And, uh, but they kept him, he was kept in prison. And so we always wonder, you know, we know God's in control and things happen for a reason. And, and what are we supposed to do during those times? But I think that we just draw close to him. I'm thinking also of a verse when I think of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where it says that he was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. I mean, Jesus endured that too. And I think about how um, it was Jim Elliott who said that he wanted an AUG degree. An AUG degree. I, I want an AUG degree too. Approved unto God. Remember when we were going through Second Timothy um, chapter 2, verse 15, and it is anyone who's saying that, um, let me turn to that verse really quickly. 2 Timothy 2.15. It says, Do your best to present to yourself to God as one approved unto God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And as I was um, looking at this, this, this sermon right here, I was thinking about all of those verses, how... You know, whether it was to be approved unto God or, you know, Paul and how he was persecuted and still boldly stood before Christ to proclaim the name of Christ. When I think about these, this section, I think of three main things. First, Festus. See, Festus, yet Felix was there. He got called back to Rome. And he wasn't necessarily the best governor. That's why he got called back to Rome. In fact, it says that he was called back for disturbances and irregularities. And now Festus just comes on the, on the scene. And he hasn't been there long. And it says that when he arrives, he hits the ground running. It says three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem. So remember, Caesarea, what that was the... The governor's site uh, along the coast had been built by um, King Herod the Great, but that's where he resided. And that he was going to go up because uh, uh, topologically, I mean, the topography was that uh, Jerusalem was up in the hills. So he went up. That's why it says it like that. So he goes up there. It says, uh, three days later, so Festus went about the 60 miles from the governor's seat to Caesarea, from Caesarea to Jerusalem. It was in the 
Jerusalem that the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before Governor Felix or Festus to present the charges against Paul. The religious leaders' words seemed reasonable, but their motive was malicious because they wanted to kill Paul. They urgently requested Festus to do a favor to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. They wanted to ambush uh, Paul and kill him along the way. This was the same type of plan, if you remember, in Acts 23, when they wanted to bring Paul to the Sanhedrin. They were waiting there to kill him as well. So Paul had been left in Caesarea for two years, and he still has a target on his back even after two years. The leading men of the city were determined, and they were persistent to have Paul eliminated. We see how the sovereign Lord uses Governor Festus to protect Paul. And he lets the religious leaders to go where Paul is being held. And he invites the leaders to come and to press their charges in Caesarea. In verse 5, it's recorded that Festus says, Let some of your leaders come and press charges against the man there. If he's done anything wrong, if it seems at this point, Festus hasn't made up his mind yet because he says if, it's, uh, if he has done anything wrong. In verse 6, it talks about Festus, he spent 8 to 10 days with the Jews in Jerusalem. Luke doesn't say specifically what happened in those um, 8 to 10 days. But you can bet the Jewish leaders were giving Festus an earful. From the other parts of the New Testament, we see how the Jewish leaders tried to manipulate Roman officials like Pontius Pilate, like Claudius Lysias, like Governor Felix, and now Festus. Then he went down to Caesarea from the highlands of Jerusalem to formally convene court in Caesarea. So remember, Caesarea is on the coastline. He goes up. He spends some time up in Jerusalem. He goes back. He invites the the Jewish leaders to come to Caesarea to present their case. So now Festus, he gets court in session. So Festus, first he hit the ground running. He just got there. And now he gets court in session. In verse 6, Festus took his seat on the tribunal uh, to convene court. The word there is bima, or a judgment seat. It literally means to step up or to ascend. Sometimes on the, on the platform there, they would have um, a place to sit as well. The platform was mounted on steps, and um, it was used by officials to address an assembly or make announcements in judicial manners. And so here we go again. After two years, there was still no solid evidence against Paul. They had no case against Paul. But it was obvious that they, of their hatred for Paul, there was nothing that would stop them from pursuing whatever means to destroy Paul. I thought about this, that the Jews, they came down not only physically from the higher elevation from Jerusalem to Caesarea, But they came down morally and ethically, too, if you think about that. They cast out lies and slander about Paul, even plotting murder in their hearts. They stood around Paul bringing serious charges, it says, that they could not prove. The word in Greek there, too, is peristemi, which literally means standing around, like vultures, ready to feast like a pack of wolves. 
I recall even in Luke 23, 10, where it talks about Jesus, it says the chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him, Jesus, vehemently. These Jewish wolves were toothless. They were all bark and no bite. These charges were groundless. They were unfounded. They were unsubstantiated. They were unproven and unsupported. But Augustine says this. He says, truth is like a lion. You don't have to defend it. You let it loose and it defends itself. Paul denies the charges in verses 8 through 10. He says that he has not done anything wrong against the law, the Jews, the temple, or against Caesar. Festus now has a dilemma on his hands. And Festus had to make a choice. First, Paul was a Roman citizen, so it required a fair trial. And if Festus released Paul, the fury of the Jews would be unleashed. And unrest would certainly be reported to Rome. Remember, he has just arrived. He doesn't want to cause lots of problems right now. So it looks like Festus is leaning to compromise by trying Paul in Jerusalem, but under Roman rule and not Jewish. In reality, Festus should have dismissed the case against Paul. And actually, it says later on in chapter 26 that King Agrippa says that uh, verse 32, Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free he is, um, if he had not appealed to Caesar. So Festus is looking for some kind of middle ground. He was a true politician. Notice again, this is like the third time it says this, where it says Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews. Verse 3, they urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have him transferred to Jerusalem. Verse 9, Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor. So remember, one of the things you do when you look in Bible study, you look at what do you observe? What seems to be coming up? It looks like they're trying to do favors for, the, for one another. And it says that Felix, um, who had Paul in prison, and Festus is just beginning to start his new position, like I said. He wants to get off on the right foot with the Jewish religious leaders. Most of them are not Christians. Festus is making the same proposal to Paul that the Jews had made to Festus in Jerusalem just a few days earlier, found in verse 3. Transfer him to Jerusalem. But the Jewish motive for relocation of Paul was to ambush him and kill him along the way. Festus had another problem. It was this. A Roman judge could not move a case to another court without the consent of the accused who happened to be a Roman. Paul refused to go. So he had another problem because he couldn't send him to Jerusalem. Instead, he claimed the right, every Roman citizen had the right to acclaim, the right to appeal to a higher court, to appeal to Caesar. Paul acknowledges that he's standing in the proper place and before the proper judge. Paul then counters Festus's question. Paul's not a fool. He knew that he wouldn't find justice in a Jewish court. He'd already seen that two years earlier. And they wanted to kill him then. How could, if Festus was not willing to give Paul justice in Caesarea, how could he receive justice in Jerusalem where there would be intense opposition? It was only those two years earlier that there was mob violence and more than 40 conspirators and the Sanhedrin wanted to eliminate him. We know Festus' mindset towards Paul. He didn't think Paul was guilty. 
He says to King Agrippa in verses 18 and 19, when his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I expected him. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul said was alive. In reality, the high standards of the Roman justice demanded that Paul be released. Paul demands justice. So basically, he was saying this, I object. That's what was said. He says, ah, basically, he's saying, I'm not going to Jerusalem to be killed. God had told him he was going to go to Rome anyways. That was, the reason I, I, um, that was the reason I was sent to Caesarea in the first place, remember, to protect his life. So Paul makes an appeal to the Supreme Court of the Roman world. Once Paul appeals to Caesar, all the trials of the lower court are ended. So he didn't, wouldn't go back to Jerusalem, wouldn't stay in Caesarea. He's going to Rome. Paul put an end to the trial by appealing to Caesar. Recall that Nero was the emperor at this time, but the first few years of Nero's reign, remember, he had, there was a, a Stoic philosopher there who sort of guided him in decision-making. That was Seneca. And uh, it was about five years after that that Nero's insanity towards Christians intensified. So remember, it's around 60 A.D. or so when he was in Caesarea and put in prison, right? And so then he gets sent to Rome. And we know that because in history, Festus, that's when he came to, uh, to Caesarea. So it was, <clears throat> it was the right of every Roman citizen... Um, and was highly respected to be able to appeal to Caesar. It was one of the oldest rights of, the, of Roman citizens. Paul, when he said that, he had crossed the Rubicon. He had taken a decisive step and there was no turning back. At long last, Paul would see Rome. And it was his desire to go there. We see that in Acts 19 and also in Romans 15. The right of appeal to Caesar came under, was started under Augustus in 30 B.C., it was expanded to forbid blinding, scourging, torture of any Roman citizen who appealed to Caesar. God was a promise-keeping God. The Lord Jesus Christ had promised God, Paul, Take courage, for as you have solemnly witnessed to my cause in Jerusalem, so you must witness in Rome also. Festus exercised the discretion in Paul's case. By conferring to an advisory council, people who sat, it says, in public trials with the governor of that province. And they concluded that Paul was going to go to Rome to see the emperor. Governor Festus had even another problem on his hands as well. Paul had appealed to Caesar, and he doesn't know what to write. So he gets some help from King Agrippa. Can you imagine? You're going to send a person who's been confined, a Roman citizen, for two years, and he's gone through trial, he appeals to, why is he kept in prison then? He appeals to Caesar, and you as the governor have to write the reason why. So now we come to the main point three, Festus, he gets counsel from King Agrippa. Festus was the new governor of the province. King Agrippa, this is Agrippa II, was the son of Herod Agrippa I. Remember, we see him in Acts chapter 12. He was the one, remember, that had killed um, 
James. And he was, remember, eaten by worms, that one? Yeah, his sister's name was Bernice. And she was uh, widowed when her second husband, the king of um, Chalcis, died in 48 AD. From then she went and she lived with her brother. And as a side note, an attempt to quiet rumors of an incestuous relationship between King Herod Agrippa II and his sister, she resolved to to marry Polemo of Cilicia, but she soon left him and returned to King Agrippa II. Josephus says that there was there what that their incestuous relationship became the gossip of Rome. Josephus said that King Agrippa II was also a trusted advisor because he was known to be very loyal to Rome. In fact, when his dad died, he was 17 years old, and he went to study in Rome. And uh, when he came back, he was so loyal. It says in 70 AD, remember when Jerusalem fell? He turned his own troops on his own countrymen, uniting with Romans to dis- in the destruction of Jerusalem. His other sister was Drusilla. I don't know if you remember her or not, but she was the wife of Felix, the governor that was before Festus. The visit was like a state visit. So basically, here's Festus. He's coming into his new position. And so King Agrippa and his sister are coming to pay a visit, a state visit, because he's newly arrived. So when he's there, it's sort of timely for Agrippa II, because now he's saying, I need to find out what's going on. You know, you know a little bit more about Jewish uh, history and religion and so on. And I need to know what to write. So what did the Jews want? Was it justice or was it to have Paul dead? They were asking for a sentence of condemnation, it says in verses 15 through 18. Festus tells the king and his sister that Paul must be given his dead in court. Like I said earlier, Agrippa would be familiar with Roman ways because he had been raised in the imperial court. The word for defense right there is also the word we get apologetics as well, to provide a defense. The charges brought by Paul's accusers were not what he expected, what Festus has expected. Roman courts considered criminal cases to include things like extortion, embezzlement, treason, corrupt practices, murder, fraud, assault. And Festus knew the Jewish leaders wanted Paul killed. But they didn't accuse him of any of those offenses. The Jewish leaders accused him on some points of disagreement regarding their own religion and about Jesus and the resurrection. Here is an important point. Not only did Festus not grasp the nature of the Jewish accusations, he was not even qualified to judge on religious matters in a Roman court of law. That's why he asked for help. What's interesting in verse 19 is that Paul asserted that that a dead man, Jesus, was alive. This is interesting. The word assert is written in the imperfect tense and literally means repeatedly repeatedly testified. So Paul was continually talking about Jesus being resurrected. The resurrection of Jesus is still a dividing point. We We can't combine other religions Christianity is not about religion. It's about a relationship with a personal God 
who rose from the dead and lives forever and ever. You, can, you have heard me say that when fear knocks on your door, open it with faith. Now I say, when eternal life is offered and knocks on your door, open it with faith, the faith in the resurrected Jesus. At least Festus is honest. He realizes he didn't know how to handle the religious case. How do you investigate a dead man who's come back to life? Festus's confession makes me think of the verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Festus wasn't telling Agrippa also the entire truth. He was trying to put himself in the best possible light, just like Felix was the time before, and also Claudius Lysias. It says in in verse 9 that he wanted to do the Jews a favor, so he asked Paul if he's willing to go up to Jerusalem. It's also interesting to note that the original question was about Paul's desecration of the temple in Acts 23. The real dispute was regarding Paul's preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. Notice that didn't even come up anymore when we talked about Acts 23. That was the whole thing. Paul brought Gentiles in the court. They're not talking about that now. This is something that the Sadducees refused to believe in the resurrection and was contrary to their teaching. So Paul's in protective custody until he's escorted to Rome. And Festus needed to have some intellig- something intelligent to write down to tell the emperor regarding the case. Agrippa agrees to hear Paul speak tomorrow. That's what he says. It's interesting that Agrippa wants to give advice. He actually wants to listen to him speak. The word also, I would like, refers to a settled desire that comes from reason and not emotion. It's also in the imperfect tense too, which means that Agrippa had been wanting to hear up from him for a long time to hear about Paul. There's a, a book that I've been reading. It's called A Collection of Puritan Prayers and Devotions. It's called The Valley of Vision. I wanted just to read this little section right here. Lord, in the daytime, in the daytime stars can be seen from the deepest wells. And the deeper the wells, the brighter the brighter the stars shine. Sometimes we feel like we're in wells, right, don't we? Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, the joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and thy glory in my valley. Sometimes you might feel like you're in a valley. Seems like it's pretty dark. Seems like you might be all alone. Seems like you might be sitting in a prison cell in Caesarea for two years wondering why you're even there. But Paul knew that he was going to do the, he was going to still keep his eyes on Jesus regardless of whatever circumstances they were. He was going to live above his circumstances and not under them. This passage reminds me of the four anchors as well that I've talked about before. I'm here by God's appointment. If God wants me here in Caesarea, I'm here in Caesarea. I'm here in God's keeping. He's going to watch over me. If he wants me here, he's going to keep me. He's going to watch over me. I'm here under God's training. I don't know what's happening. He might be showing me something, but I'm going to learn. Lord, show me what you want me to learn. 
and I'm here for whatever time you want me to be here. Those are the four anchors, remember, that Andrew Murray wrote in that little booklet. It's called Green Leaf and Drought, great book. But I just thought of that as I was reading this chapter. I'm here by God's appointment. I'm here under his keeping. I'm here under, for his training for whatever time he might want me to be here. Also, I was thinking about this as well as a, a word of application. It says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because of the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Paul showed a holy boldness to share the gospel before kings, the Jewish Supreme Court, intellectuals in Athens, and even in the capital city of the Roman Empire. How do you cultivate this spiritual boldness even in the midst when you're sitting in a prison cell? I think one is that you pray for it. You pray for boldness. You ask the Holy Spirit to to work in you, to help you to overcome any fears that there might be. That's why Paul could say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm here. There's somebody maybe in this prison right here that I can minister to. I'm going to be your witness wherever you put me. But you pray for spiritual boldness. I think you pray for opportunities to be able to share that boldness with people and asking God as as you open your mouth, He will fill it. What does it say in Psalm 81.10? Open thy mouth and I will fill it. Trust in the Lord that he will meet your needs. And also I think it's important to memorize scripture. That you you think about that in Joshua chapter 1. Verse 8 or 9 it says this. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you. What's the rest of the verse say? Wherever you Wherever you go. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. <laughs> you know what it says that the word of the Lord is <laughs> sharper than to a sword. Piercing as far as soul and spirit and joints of marrow, unable to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And if this is the word of God, and we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, right? And it says in Second Peter that people were moved along the spirit as they wrote. When it says wherever you go, it means wherever you go. Wherever you go whether you're going to Caesarea or whether you're going to Rome, whether you're going to get shipwrecked on the island of Malta, whether you're in a prison cell in Philippi, whether people are being rude and slanderous, um, the Lord will be with you. I didn't mean to get emotional, but anyways, let's close in prayer.
Lord, we, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for mountaintop experiences. And we thank you for valleys. We thank you for the light. We thank you for the light that shines in darkness. Lord, we just claim the promise knowing that wherever we go, you'll be with us. Help us to be strong in the Lord. Help us to lean close to you. Help us to draw near to you. Knowing that Paul went through so much, but he had so much of a person within him, the person of Christ. Lord, I pray that we would let our light so shine before men that they might see our good works and glorify you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.